So today we're listening to a selection from Gotterdammerung, the fourth of the four operas in Wagner's Ring Cycle. Um, you cannot talk about romantic music without getting at least a little bit to Wagner, and Wagner is especially important because of his influence on contemporary music, especially things like movie soundtracks and other music that sort of accompanies um, productions across the board. Wagner pioneered this technique known as the leitmotif, um, and in leitmotifs he would use a musical sort of uh, chord or melody, like there's tiny little snippet to indicate a character or a symbol or even a theme over the course of the opera. Um, so for example, this theme that you're hearing now. This is the Valhalla theme, and it is at this moment in the opera that Valhalla is burning, it is destroyed. Um, this is the famous Norse myth of Ragnarok that is sort of coming to be at this moment. So you can hear the theme. But you'll see it's accompanied by this little violin fiddly little bits, which is actually part of the, the theme that he uses for fire and destruction and for Loki, the sort of adversary of the gods throughout the story. Um, these leitmotifs you'll see in movies all the time now, like Howard Shore in the Lord of the Rings movies uses his leitmotifs for the Fellowship or for the Hobbits very frequently. Um, Star Wars famously employs a bunch of different leitmotifs, one for Luke, one for you know Darth Vader in the Imperial March, one for Han Solo and Leia's romance, one for, you know, even in the prequels and the contemporary sequels, all of those movies have these leitmotifs which are played upon throughout. Um, this has become a very common technique, uh, especially in the film, where, like in opera, you have music accompanying the actual storytelling. What's more, though, Wagner represents a part of the Romantic movement that we frequently haven't talked about up until this point, but will become relevant in this little section of Faust. Um, namely, the Romantics are very concerned and very interested in storytelling and myth and sort of, like, national identity and history, um, something that will become more and more powerful and more and more dangerous over the course of the 19th century. Um, Wagner's Ring Cycle specifically pulls from Anglo-Saxon and Nordic myth. Um, this is very much the moment when Norse mythology is starting to pick up popularity in Germany at this time. Das Rheingold retells some of the great Norse myths, the tale of Siegfried and how his death ultimately coincides with the end of the, the Norse god's reign. Um, but this is also the age of Grimm's fairy tales. This is the age when, you know, a lot of linguists and philologists and, you know, and like proto-anthropologists are digging up stories and folk tales and sort of bringing them to life again. Um, I mean, Goethe is doing that himself. He's resurrecting the Faust legend, which is laying dormant for quite a while, um, now that he has a renewed interest in his culture and in his heritage. Um, you'll see the same thing frequently elsewhere. Um, like, 
Wagner's resurrecting Norse myth, Goethe's resurrecting the Faust legend. You will see, like, the English are sort of experimenting with their own sort of fairy tales. You'll see the Americans and the Russians sort of building a mythology for themselves where it didn't used to exist. Um, this is something that the, the Romantics are very interested in, not just the romanticization of contemporary life, but sort of a reinvigoration of the past. Um, Perhaps the most obvious example of this is, is Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Uh, his Ninth Symphony takes an old German drinking song and elevates it to this massive, all-out symphony, complete with chorus and everything that goes along with it. It's a huge, bombastic piece, very fitting for the Romantic period, where, you know, things that peasants liked and things that were considered vulgar or, or base are now elevated to high art. Um, you'll see this more and more in Goethe and elsewhere as we go through the Romantics. Back to Faust Part 1. Alright, so last lecture went a little bit long, and I wager the next one's going to go a little bit long as well, so we're going to try and keep this one fairly short. Um, so for today we're discussing scenes 6 to 9, although we are going to sort of pick up in scene 5 since I kind of skipped a lot of, of that in the, the last lecture. Um, and where we spent a lot of time talking about Faust and talking about Goethe and his attitude towards writing Faust, um, today I want to sort of zero in especially on Mephistopheles now that he's revealed himself to Faust and his, his first interactions have started to take place. Um, Throughout this class, I've always been kind of keen to focus on how the devil, how hell, how Mephistopheles is portrayed by these authors, largely because that gives us a pretty good sense of how the, the author understands good and evil. Um, if Faust is, on some level, this romantic hero, this you know perfect embodiment of striving for the sake of striving, suffering for the sake of suffering, if he is serving the Lord through his confused struggle, um, then Mephistopheles kind of represents the polar opposite to that. Not because he's not struggling or striving, um, but because he's perpetually ironic, because he's not engaged in the world. Um, it's kind of tricky, like Faust and Mephistopheles in fact have a lot in common, um, but you'll remember even from... Um, even from scene three, that prologue in heaven, God even has this line about how, you know, Mephistopheles doesn't even offend him all that much because the ironic scold has never offended him much. Um, Mephistopheles is kind of a joke uh, in this text. Like, if Faust is the serious romantic soul always reaching towards greatness and unable to get there because of the, the conflict inherent in the human soul, this earth versus versus heaven sort of dichotomy, um, Mephistopheles never takes anything seriously. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he's evil. We'll get into sort of the evil dimensions of Mephistopheles. Um, but his jokester, his reduction of everything serious to something, you know, passing or funny or stupid, um, is itself very much antithetical to what Faust is doing here. Um, Faust takes things seriously, he takes himself seriously, he takes his world seriously, he wants to understand it more. Mephistopheles couldn't care less. Um, in some way, Mephistopheles is the driving force in this text. Like, he is the one constantly getting Faust to do things. It's not like in Dr. Faustus where, you know, Faustus would constantly order Mephistopheles to do things, and then Mephistopheles would have to do them. Instead, Faust 
doesn't know what he wants. Like, he's kind of stuck in his quasi-humanness, this, you know, caught between the two poles of his being. Mephistopheles, by making everything into a joke, by constantly pushing him, by kind of swooping Faust off from place to place, keeps the narrative moving, in so much as there is a narrative at all here. Um, now, the first time we encounter Mephistopheles, he is in disguise. Um, and Mephistopheles will be enjoying quite a few disguises over the course of this section. Um, we meet him first as Mephistopheles, the black dog, the poodle. Um, and there's even like a, a part in scene five, you'll notice that they're talking about uh, this two souls division. Like that long speech that I, I read from last time where Faust is saying, you know, one part of my soul loves the world, the other longs to soar beyond the dust. It's right after that that Wagner chastens Faust. Wagner says, Oh, do not call the dreaded host that swarms and streams abroad throughout the atmosphere. Um, Faust has concluded, like he's gone through his, you know, lamentation. Why can't I be, you know, either divine or human? Why am I stuck with both of these souls? Is there some being that skirts both of these worlds? And Wagner says, don't, summon those beings because the logical conclusion the being that he is referring to the the thing that lives on between earth and sky are demons um that's what faust is describing here the only being that shares this two polar opposite married to one person character are devils they too are divine and yet debased. They too have godliness in them, and yet that godliness is inaccessible because they are forced to root around in the dirt like worms. Um, in that sense, Mephistopheles is very much like Faust. He is the spirit that fits him in the way that the earth spirit simply did not. The earth spirit was much greater than Faust, and Faust couldn't handle it, and the earth spirit told Faust that. Mephistopheles, on the other hand, is the spirit that totally matches Faust. He has exactly the same characteristics. They are of a kind. Um, Wagner warns him against this, though. Wagner, with all of his highfalutin academic knowledge, he knows his Bible, he knows that summoning these spirits will end badly for him. But unlike the, you know, old man and Dr. Faustus who warns Faust properly about just repent and you'll be saved, Wagner is still a fool here. Um, he doesn't appreciate what's happening. Um, he doesn't understand the implications of what he is talking about. He doesn't understand the relationship between angels and demons, God and, and the devil, earth and, and hell and heaven. Um, you'll notice that God uses Mephistopheles. That's the whole point of that prelude. Like, God is talking to Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles wants to convert Faust. And God says, actually, if I set you on Faust, it'll make him more aware of what his mission actually is. It will draw him closer to God. Um, but notice that it's right after the speech, right after Faust, you know, says, come down then to me from your golden mists on high and to new many colored life, oh, take me there. After he entreats the spirits to come to him and after Wagner warns him away from it, it's right at that moment that Faust finds the dog. Mephistopheles is in some way summoned. Like it's not entirely clear. It is clear that Mephistopheles has been hanging around Faust for a while. 
Um, like later, Faust is lamenting his situation. Mephistopheles mentions, uh, I was there when you were thinking of killing yourself. You're really going to turn back on that now. It's pretty obvious that Mephistopheles has been keeping a pretty close eye on Faust since this play has started. But here is when he actually reveals himself. Um, Faust doesn't have to summon him. Mephistopheles, in fact, comes to Faust of his own volition. Remember, there's that whole bargain, that wager with God that's sort of hanging over this. Um, but at the same time, Faust does summon him. Faust does ask for him. It's not nearly as official or impressive. There's no need for stage directions, no fireworks like in Fa Dr. Faustus. But at the same time, in Dr. Faustus, it was stressed. Anyone who speaks against God is, by its very nature, likely to summon a devil. That's what they're looking for. Here we have Faust entreating the spirits between earth and sky, and Mephistopheles responds, as is appropriate. Um, now, as soon as Faust is sitting in his study, he does the second thing that sort of summons up what's, what will ultimately happen. He starts to translate the Bible. Um, and this scene is theologically motivated, I suspect. Like, it's not entirely clear what Goethe's getting at here, but this scene is still very powerful in much the same way that a lot of Goethe's observations and scenes are, are sort of disjointed from the rest of the story and yet surprisingly powerful and, and sort of potent with ominous overtones. Um, so he's translating the Bible into German and he opens up to John 1. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with John 1, this is one of the most theologically rich passages in all of the New Testament. Um, this is the passage where God is sort of identified as being Jesus. Um, like, this is the strongest affirmation. Um, the first line is, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. But the key here is that word, word. Um, in the Greek, the word word is logos, and the word logos in Greek means a lot more than the word word does in English. Logos has implications not just of being like a word in a sentence, but also of being language itself, of being logic itself, of being rationality itself. Um, in some sense, when when John says in the beginning was the word what he's saying is in the beginning was like law law of the cosmos order um, organization um, and it is one of the most controversially translated passages in all of the bible um, like logos just does not translate easily to any single english word as i'm trying to stress here um, so as much as we say you know in as much as the standard translation is in the beginning was the word the implications are way bigger than that theologically um, and we've sort of expanded the meaning of the word word to to accommodate that when we read the bible in this way um, now faust is wrestling with this particular passage he's trying to translate the bible he's trying to translate john he comes to this passage and we get this speech right around line 1225 in the beginning was the word he says and why now? I'm stuck already. I must change that. How? Is then the word so great and high a thing? There is some other rendering, which with the Spirit's guidance I must find. 
Faust, like any good Christian translator, is frustrated by the limits of language in this case. Logos is a bigger word than just the mere English word word can ac accurately describe. So here he's not actually doing anything too strange. He is recognizing the limits of the language. He is casting about for something better. But notice what he ultimately lands on. We read, in the beginning was the mind. So instead of word, now we're talking about mind. This is not too far a jump. Like, there are words for mind in Greek besides logos. Like, you would logically use um, suke, psyche, or um, episteme for knowledge, for example. Um, hence the term epistemology, the study of the mind. Um, but this is a little bit of a strange deviation. This is suggesting that you know, mind is somehow superior to this, like, law of rationality. What Faust is kind of doing is what you would expect the Romantics to do, to take it out of the realm of this abstract intelligentsia. In the beginning was God, is kind of what this passage is emphasizing. Again, the second part of this passage is the word was God, logos was theos. Um, so Faust is sort of anticipating this. God is mind, is what he's suggesting here. This seems richer to him than God is word. God is mere logic in this enlightenment sense. Now we're saying mind, which has a more robust sense, something more than just logic, rationality, order, the governance of the world. Now mind is more chaotic, it's less predictable. It has logic in it, yes, but that's not all that it does. But he keeps going. Before you write this first phrase, think again. Good sense eludes the overhasty pen. Does mind set worlds on their creative course? It means in the beginning was the force. Notice that now we've changed even more radically. Word usually is taken to represent like the laws governing the universe or something intellectual, and mind sort of stresses the intellectual dimension at the expense of the organization dimension. Now we're throwing out both of them. In the beginning was force, power. Um, this is a typically Faustian direction to take a passage like this. God is not mind, God is force, God is power, God is the will to do things in some sense. It is not some abstract, idealized, you know, intellectual thing that God is. Instead, God is power, might, the doing things. It is making things happen. And notice that his next step is even more romantic. So it should be, he says, but as I write this too, some instinct wor warns me that it will not do. The spirit speaks, I see how it must read, and boldly write, in the beginning was the deed. Acting, doing things. God is doing things. But notice how we've gone completely the opposite direction from the normal translation. In the beginning was the word, now in the beginning was the deed. Like we usually contrast, even rec recognize as opposites, word and deed. Deed is the antithesis of word, and word is the antithesis of deed. So Faust has swung this passage all the way around to its opposite meaning. Instead of in the beginning was the intelligence, the mind, the order of the universe, the principle, now, in fact, we have actuality as the motive force behind the universe. God as what 
is doing. God is doing things itself. Um, this is very romantic. Remember, everything that we've seen about God from the romantics at this point has emphasized God's creative work, nature. Nature as the way of understanding God, both in the artwork and in Goethe's own words, like where Faust is emphasizing it earlier or where the angels are talking about, you know, God's great creative work and how this is, they're just apparently repeating this up in heaven. Like over and over, we've seen this text emphasize God doing things. Now it comes even more explicitly. We're going to change the Bible itself to represent this. Now, admittedly, mind would have been a pretty wild translation from logos. Force, perhaps even more so. I'm not sure what the German word in this case is or how exactly it relates. Um, but I have an idea that it is rather violent. Deed is an even more violent, like, move away from what logos actually means. You could theoretically understand deed as a part of logos, but it would be a lot of work. Um, you would be translating it in a very counterintuitive way. Um, Logos is about intention, much more than it is about action. Um, the Greeks have words for action. This is not that. Um, and notice that this is when Mephistopheles wakes up again. Like, he's been kind of annoying. Faust has spent a lot of the of scene six sort of yelling at, at Mephistopheles, the poodle, to, to shut up. Um, now... Finally, the poodle is changing. He says, if we are to share this room in peace, poodle, this noise has got to end. This howling and barking has got to end. My invitation did not extend to so cacophonous a friend. But he looks. What is this I see? Can it be happening naturally? Is it real? Is it a dream or not? How long and broad my poodle has got. Mephistopheles is transforming into a human shape just in front of him. And thus we have Mephistopheles' second disguise. He is now as we see in line 1322 or so, he steps out from behind the stove as the mist disperses, dressed as a medieval wandering student. Now, you'll remember back in Dr. Faustus, Faustus commanded Mephistopheles to appear as a Franciscan friar, because, again, it's super Protestant, we hate the Catholics, so Marlowe is taking every possible opportunity to make fun of Catholicism, including the mendicant monastic orders. Um, when... Faust, or when Goethe describes a medieval wandering student, he's doing something essentially the same. Like, the monasteries were the centers of learning in the medieval period. Like, if you were a student, you probably wore the same robes and cassock that a friar wore, in all likelihood. And a wandering student most likely means an itinerant monk, like the Franciscans, like the Dominicans. But notice that the emphasis in this case is not on his Catholicness. It's not specifically a Franciscan student. It's the fact that he is a student. The fact that he is seeking knowledge in this way that Goethe highlights as being this demonic presence. Remember, Faust has at already, and at some length, lamented the fact that as a professor, he's caught in his room. He's forced to, you know, teach these students. We have Wagner as sort of the opposite pole, you know, trying to get all of his knowledge from books, which Faust knows is pointless and worthless. So Mephistopheles further further emphasizes that. As a student, he is sort of making fun of the business of scholarship. He is saying that it is devilish that students are themselves so wrong-headed as to be evil. Um, and there is 
perhaps no more clear antithesis to this new romantic perspective than the very rigorous intellectualism that the medieval scholars practiced. Um, the medieval monks and the medieval writers and the medieval theologians were all very concerned with this high academic knowledge, with ordering the world into each, you know, its separate place. They were very interested in categorization, very interested in the specific meaning of words, very specific in, you know, how words connected to the universe around them. Um, they taught that what they had to say, what Plato and Aristotle had taught, what the Bible teaches, was more important than what you would find in the world. And that's why Mephistopheles takes on this character, this disguise. Mephistopheles presents himself as someone who knows all of the nonsensical truths of human, you know, imagination, but in fact is entirely removed from practical wisdom, from the truth that Faust is searching for in the world. They only know wordplay, and that's what Mephistopheles is sort of getting at here. Now, Faust immediately confronts him. He asks, what is your name? And Mephistopheles already is poking fun at him. Why do you care about words, he says. You were literally just translating Logos into deed. How are you going to, you know, do anything with a name? Why don't you search for, as you keep saying, the inmost essence, not the outward show? You have such deep contempt for the mere word, he jokes. Now, Faust recognizes immediately that he is demonic. Like, Obviously, these already twisting words. He's some kind of supernatural being. He's got some kind of malicious streak to him. Clearly a devil. He's, he's not, you know, deceived about any of this. Um, so he asks, ah, which, with such a gentleman as you, the name often conveys the essence too. Clearly enough, we say Lord of the Flies, Destroyer, Liar, each most fittingly applies. Well then, who are you? In short, he's asking which demon, which devil, which evil force are you because the name itself will give away your essence in this case and mephistopheles responds and this is the first of mephistopheles mephistopheles's important self like announcement self-naming he says i am part of that power which would do evil constantly and constantly does good now this is important we're going to see this one again, and we have already seen it before, and we definitely need to talk about it here. What he is saying is, I am part of that power. He is part of, you know, the great whole and, like, devilish contingent, which would do evil constantly, which wants to do evil, and yet does good instead. This should definitely remind us of Dante and, you know, Satan weeping because he knew that he was actually serving God and ultimately was separated from God. This should absolutely remind us of Milton and his whole discussion with Satan and how Satan is, like, determined to do evil and Beelzebub is like, dude, what if God just wants you to do good? Here we have it expressed incredibly concisely. Mephistopheles the devil is part of that power which would do evil constantly and constantly does good instead. He wants to do evil, but all of his evil ultimately redounds to God's glory. It is all within God's plan. And God has even emphasized this himself. He's stressed way back in the prelude that 
Faust was his servant, that he would eventually realize it, that all of this would become clear to him, that he was, in short, already saved. And yet Mephistopheles is more than welcome to tempt Faust because it will, in the end, bring Faust closer to God. It will, in fact, accomplish God's purposes more effectively than if Mephistopheles was not there. Um, at the end of the day, what he is saying is, I am I, Mephistopheles, am evil, but will do good, despite the fact that I'm going to do my best not to do good. Um, that's the problem that he faces. But notice, too, that he acknowledges it. Where Satan denies it so strongly throughout Milton's Paradise Lost, where, you know, it, it's sort of this hanging, looming truth that Satan self-deceives himself about, refuses to acknowledge. Here, Mephistopheles introduces himself as this. I am the power that wants to do evil, but will inevitably do good. He is aware of his role in this divinely ordered system. Um, he knows that's what he's going to do. That's what he's stuck doing. Um, so Faust says this riddle has no doubt some explanation, and Mephistopheles clarifies. We have our second self-definition by Mephistopheles. I am the spirit of perpetual negation, and rightly so, for all things that exist deserve to perish and would not be missed. Much better it would be if nothing were brought into being. Thus what you men call destruction, sin, evil, in short, is all my sphere, the element I most prefer. Here we have Mephistopheles claiming not just, you know, he would do evil, he explains what evil is in this case. He is the spirit of perpetual negation, of perpetual destruction. He is not a force for evil in the sense that, like, Dante's devil is trying to, like, tempt people into straying away from God, or Milton's Satan is trying to do the same. Instead, he is a spirit of perpetual negation. He is not interested in evil as this sort of alternative to good. He is interested in evil as annihilation, as total destruction, as destroying and negating everything that exists. He is very blunt about it here. He says all things that exist deserve to perish, would not be missed, and would be better if nothing were brought into being. He wants to destroy everything that is and replace it with nothing like nothing in a positive sense nothing as it is not um nothing as in void um that's what mephistopheles represents here that is the force that he fights for he wants to annihilate the universe render it into nothing bring about nothing because everything that exists is disturbing to him um he says, I speak the modest truth, I use no art. Let foolish little human souls delude themselves that they are holes. I am part of that part which once when all began was all there was. Part of the darkness before man, whence light was born. Proud light, which now makes futile war to wrest from night its mother what before was hers, her ancient place and space. Mephistopheles identifies himself with the darkness with the void before even light was. And he sees light, i.e. God, the whole cosmic goodness, as being ultimately a perversion of that void, that darkness. And he wants to ultimately return the light to the darkness, return what is to what is not, return something to nothing, return existence to void. That is his goal. 
And notice, again, we have something that is kind of typically romantic about this. When, you know, Mephistopheles introduces himself in Dr. Faustus, he emphasizes that hell is wherever he is, that hell is wherever, you know, God is not. And because Mephistopheles is cut off from God, he is therefore hopeless. Hence, that goes back to what Dante said, where it says, you know, abandon all hope you all who enter here. Hopelessness is evil. All that Mephistopheles has to do is convince Faust of Marlowe, the, the Dr. Faustus, that he has no hope, that he despairs and he will achieve his ends. He will ultimately damn Faust. Instead, what Mephistopheles is interested in is not despair, but annihilation itself. Like, there is no eternal life as far as Mephistopheles is concerned. He wants to snuff it out. He wants there to be nothing. And this, we should also notice, like, it is really easy to conflate this with evil in the, the sense that, like, Milton and, and Dante and, and Marlowe were kind of talking about. Um, but notice that this is a change. Like, notice that if annihilation, if nothingness is the epitome of evil, then whatever does exist is by its very nature good. That's what Faut or Goethe is kind of implicitly suggesting here when Mephistopheles stresses that he is the force of annihilation. Goethe has no problem with many of the things that would be considered sinful or evil in the usual sense. Remember, even God stressed at, in the prelude that man errs Till he ceases striving, but this striving is still good, and it is better than standing still. Faust is, or Goethe is kind of suggesting here that even sinfulness, even like adultery or murder or any of the things that, you know, we usually associate with evil is in some way better than there being nothing at all. Striving is good, according to Faust, to Faust and to Goethe. Um, all striving, including striving for what we would normally consider evil. Um, and by the end of this play, Faust is going to do some really terrible stuff, like truly awful. Um, again, Faust has specifically said he wants to enjoy the whole of human experience. When Mephistopheles is tempting him, that's what Faust wants. It's not, you know, give me pleasure the way that, you know, Marlowe's Dr. Faustus would, would want. Instead, he wants the breadth, the length and the breadth of human experience. Give me the suffering. Give me the highs and the lows. Give me, you know, the, the best moments and the worst moments. Keep me on my toes. Make me feel both the life of the murder and the life of the victim. Like, that's what he wants. And all of that is good on some level as far as Goethe is concerned. All of the various struggles that human beings go through for good or evil are, at the end of the day, opposed to what Mephistopheles re represents. The evil, the perpetual negation that he stresses. That's not Christian in the usual understanding. Dante and Marlowe and Milton would all balk at this for various reasons. Um, and now their opinions of evil aren't all just one unitary thing, though it is way closer to Christ mainline Orthodox Christianity than what we're seeing here. Goethe is pushing evil to a new place. And as a consequence, he is expanding what constitutes good. He is saying that Faust's struggles, as destructive as they may often turn out to be, will at the end of the day be positive. 
um, will at the end of the day represent something triumphant. So as Faust says uh, around line 1379, and so the ever stirring wholesome energy of life is your arch enemy. So in cold rage you raise in vain your clenched satanic fist. Why, you strange son of chaos, think again and look for something else to do. Faust can't abide this. Like, this is anathema to who Faust is. Everything that Faust has sought after has represented itself in this force of change, of violence, of struggle. Like, when the angels were talking up the glories of creation, they were stressing the struggle, the violence, the huge titanic forces in play, the motion of the planets and the motion of the sea and, you know, the storms and the lightning, all of that represented God to them. When Faust interacted with the earth spirit, the earth spirit introduced itself as moving and, like, pulsating and changing and doing all of this stuff, and that's why Faust wanted to be like that, why he said that they are the same. Mephistopheles wants to eliminate change because he wants to eliminate everything. Mephistopheles wants to annihilate the world and in so doing all of the crazy tumultuous striving that the world does. Um, so in that sense, Faust and Mephistopheles are on some level mortal enemies. Like they are, you know, fire and water. They are absolutely opposed. Um, Faust represents that striving, that constant activity of the world. Mephistopheles wants to snuff it out. Um, and Mephistopheles wants to do this to Faust to some degree as well. Um, now, Faust initially is asking a couple of things about Mephistopheles. There's this whole kerfuffle about, like, Mephistopheles is now locked in because there's this, like, poorly drawn pentagram on the door. Um, little did Faust know that he was going to be accidentally trapping devils. Turns out Mephistopheles isn't that worried about it. Like, he gets a bunch of rats to, like, gnaw away the mark. Um, but he does put Faust to sleep so he can prepare for this upcoming bargain that he hopes to make. Um, which is when Faust wakes up, he finds that Mephistopheles has changed costume again. We get the third disguise of Mephistopheles. So at the very beginning of scene seven, right around line 1535 or so, Mephistopheles enters and says, Well done, I think we're going to get on together, you and I. To cheer you up, I've come dressed as a cavalier, in scarlet, with gold trimmings, cloak of good stiff silk, and in my hat the usual cock's feather. Take a fine, long-pointed rapier, and one's complete. Notice what he's describing here probably doesn't immediately strike you, but he is wearing a Spanish cavalier's outfit, like a cavalryman's outfit. He is dressed up as Don Juan, in short. And this is not the last time we are going to see references to Don Juan throughout Goethe's Faust. Um, this is the one point in the class where the two traditions, the Faust tradition and the Don Juan tradition, are very much going to meet. They're going to bump into each other. Um, the Don Juan tradition is not only going to be referenced, alluded to, like it is here, but in some ways Faust is even going to act it out. Um, Faust will at one point become Don Juan. And Mephistopheles anticipates that here by dressing up as Don Juan, by presenting himself as the never-satisfied Spanish cavalier. Um, in some way, Faust and Don Juan are one and the same person, as Goethe presents them. Remember, Don Juan is defined by his constant lusting after more and more women. He is never satisfied. It is the thrill of the chase that excites him. 
Faust is in a similar situation. It is the striving that he finds desirable. He doesn't want to, you know, rest satisfied, and soon he won't even be able to. Um, he is interested in the chase alone, which is a very Don Juan sort of character. Now, as they're talking, um, they finally get around to the bargain. Um, and you should definitely pay attention to the way that this one pans out because it is very different from what we see with Marlowe, especially. Um, a lot of students don't pick up on that uh, at first. But Faust actually is sort of presented with the typical Faustian bargain. Um, so Faust explains, this is page 49 around line 1585, in that great tor turmoil and distress, sweet well-known echoing notes deceive my ear, old childhood joys relieve my homesick heart, this I confess. He's explaining to Mephistopheles why he was thinking about committing suicide and why he ultimately didn't. Um, Faust mentions that he envies the dead, that he wishes that he had that peace of mind that the dead have, and Mephistopheles chides him. And yet in that same night, he says, someone who mixed a brown elixir did not drink it down. Uh, Faust was on the verge of killing himself, but didn't. So you, sir, are in no position to talk about wanting to die. You had your chance. You screwed it up. Time to come clean about that. And Faust responds that, yes, he did. In that great turmoil and distress, sweet well-known echoing notes deceived my ear. He remembered his childhood, he heard the Easter saying, and he did not die. He did not kill himself. He sees it, though, as a moment of weakness. But now I curse all flattering spells that tempt our souls with consolation, all that beguilingly compels us to endure Earth's tribulation. He says, I now reject that. Any solace that we receive, any consolation that says, you know, Earth's suffering is worth doing, I reject that now. I curse that now. A curse first on the high pretenses of our own intellectual pride, a curse on our deluded senses that keep life's surface beautified, a curse upon our dreams of fame, of honor, and a lasting name, a curse upon vain property, on wife and child and husbandry. He's cursing each of the things that are considered worthwhile, each of the things that human life usually finds meaning in. He rejects intellectualism, our intellectual pride. He rejects beauty, the deluded senses that keeps life's surface beautified. He rejects fame, he rejects property, gold. He rejects all of these accomplishments. He rejects honor, he rejects all, like, warfare. He rejects faith, hope, and patience. Like, all of the traditional Christian values he systematically rejects. He shuts it all down. No. My soul is divided, and anything that, like, blurs my senses, that deludes me into thinking that I'm not divided, or divided in this way is just a temptation and I reject it. Instead, all I want is death. That is the only true solace. But Mephistopheles offers an alternative. He says around line 1635, Stop playing with your misery that gnaws your vitals like some carrion bird. Even the worst human society where you feel human is to be preferred. I don't, of course, propose that we should merely mingle with the common herd. I'm not exactly a grandee. But if you'd fancy getting through your life in partnership with me, I shall with pleasure, without more ado, wholly devote myself to you. You shall have my company, and if you are satisfied, I shall be your servant, always at your side. 
So Mephistopheles offers, hey, I can make things a lot better. I can show you all that pleasure that you're looking for, all that real like self-realization. All you got to do is pal around with me for a little while. In short, he's making the bargain. And Faust says, what is your reward for this to be? And Mephistopheles says, long years will pass till we need think of that. Remember the, that in Marlowe's Faust, the deal is you get 24 years of life and then your soul gets taken down to hell. Satan owns you body and soul. Mephistopheles is presenting something similar. Don't worry about what I get out of this. Like, it'll be a long time before we have to worry about that. And Faust says, no, no, the devil has his tit for tat. He is an egoist. He'll not work for free, merely to benefit humanity. State your conditions, make them plain and clear. Servants like you can cost one dear. See, this Faust is wise. He knows that there's a trap here, that there's something that he's getting out of it, and he's not going to be bought out this easily. So Mephistopheles explains, In this world, I will bind myself to cater for all your whims, to serve and wait on you. When we meet in the next world, sometime later, wages in the same kind will then fall due. In short, as long as you're alive, as long as you are in this world, I will bend to your will. I will do whatever you want me to. Keep, I will live at your beck and call. But when you die and when we come to the next world, you're all mine. You will do the same for me. You will serve my every beck and call. So it's a little different from what we saw with Marlowe. There's no 24-year time limit, but we are getting roughly the same bargain. But notice that Faust refuses. The next world, he says, well, that's no great matter. Here is a world for you to shatter. Smash this one first, then let the next be born. Faust says, this world is all I care about, in short. Out of this earth all my contentment springs. This sun shines on my sufferings. First wean me from all earthly things. What happens then is not my concern. That's something I've no wish to hear, whether there's hatred still or love in that remote supernal sphere and who's below and who's above. Faust doesn't care. Like Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, Faust is only interested in this world. What happens afterward is not something he's interested in. But notice that the reasoning has changed. Marlowe's Faustus doesn't believe in an afterlife. He doesn't see any evidence for it. He doesn't trust the Bible. He thinks it's all just a scam. What does he care? He's damned either way. This Faust sees everything good as being about this life. There, if there is an afterlife, Faust doesn't want any part of it. He doesn't care. All of the struggling, all of the striving, all that makes Faust's life worthwhile is earthly. It is... All of this, you know, accomplishment and trying to accomplish things and failing to accomplish things, these desires that he experiences and these pleasures that are presented to him and then taken away, that's what he wants. Heaven is promised satisfaction. It is, you know, you will always have whatever you want whenever you want it. And Faust doesn't want that because it's the striving that he's interested in. Hell, on the other hand, is all torment. There's nothing to strive for. So either way, it's hell to Faust. Neither heaven nor hell are satisfying to him. He doesn't want those things. He wants to struggle and strive and suffer like a proper romantic hero. So Mephistopheles says, well, that makes it easy. Why in that case, be bold and dare. Bind yourself to me. Begin life anew. You soon will see what I can do. No man has ever known a spectacle so rare. Mephist Mephistopheles is like, 
well, then this is a no-brainer. Sign up with me. I'll make this life even richer. You don't have to worry about com what comes in the next life. You're obviously not worried about your soul, so why are we even having a conversation? Just sign on the dotted line. But Faust instead is suspicious of what Mephistopheles can actually offer him. Poor devil, he says. What can you offer to me? A mind like yours? How can it comprehend a human spirit's high activity? But have you food? that leaves one still unsatisfied, quicksilver gold that breaks up in one's very hands? Can you provide a game that I can never win? Procure a girl whose roving eye invites the next man, even as I lie in her embrace. A meteoric fame that fades as quickly as it came. Show me the fruit that's, that rots before it's plucked and trees that change their foliage every day. Notice... Faust doesn't want riches. He doesn't want accomplishments. He doesn't want, you know, fancy favors or the best of what the world has to offer. He wants to be frustrated. He wants to struggle and strive in greater ways than he can in his current circumstances. He doesn't ask for gold. He asks for quicksilver gold that disappears as soon as he has it. He doesn't ask for love. He asks for a girl who will never be satisfied with him. He doesn't ask for intelligence, he asks for meteoric fame that fades as quickly as it's gained. He doesn't want lasting accomplishments, he wants this temporal struggle. And he says, you can't give that to me. You were a devil, you don't think that way. And it's true, Mephistopheles doesn't understand this. Um, he's like, sure, I can do those things. I shall perform as you instruct, all these delights I can purvey. But there are times in life, my friend, when one enjoys mere quiet satisfaction. Why don't you just rest content, is what Mephistopheles says. There are lots of things that can do that. And notice that Mephistopheles is still in his bet with God. Mephistopheles is trying to turn Faust away from God. And so Mephistopheles sees the best way to do that as to tempt Faust's soul to the point that he no longer wants God, that he is perfectly satisfied in what Mephistopheles has to offer. But this is a very different sort of Faust he's dealing with. Instead, Faust changes the rules of the bargain. He says, if ever I lie down in sloth and base inaction, then let that moment be my end. If by your false cajolery you lull me into self-sufficiency, if any pleasure you can give deludes me, let me cease to live. I offer you this wager. And Mephistopheles says, done. And done again, Faust says. If ever to the moment I shall say, beautiful moment, do not pass away, then you may forge your chains to bind me. Then I will put my life behind me. Then let them hear my death knell toll. Then from your labors you'll be free. The clock may stop, the clock hands fall, and time come to an end for me. We're not dealing with a bargain here. This is not a sign on the dotted line situation. This is a bet. It is a wager. Just like the wager that Mephistopheles and God had in the third prelude. Here, Faust is saying, if you can ever tempt me to be totally satisfied, if I am ever in a position where I say to you, I don't want this to stop, I don't want this to end, then Mephistopheles wins. And only then. Faust is free to leave at any moment. Faust is bound to see what Mephistopheles has to offer, but Faust is more than welcome to just keep on going. 
There's no guarantee that his soul is damned. Mephistopheles has to win his soul in order for that to work. Faust has to rest, to stop, to be satisfied. If Mephistopheles can satisfy him, Mephistopheles wins Faust's soul. But remember what God said back in the prelude that the whole point of Mephistopheles was to keep urging him on, to keep frustrating Faust's efforts, that that would push him further and further, and that, as God said, to stand still is the worst thing that can happen to human beings. That's what he doesn't want. Man is too apt to sink into mere satisfaction. A total standstill is his constant wish. Faust isn't. So when Mephistopheles offers this bargain, he is effectively pushing Faust into never being satisfied, into never killing himself, into never actually resting content. It is in Faust's best interests to always move forward, to always keep striving. Mephistopheles is taking on a bargain to try and trick Faust out of his need to constantly be satisfied. And in the process, Faust, who is in control of himself, is just finding this urge to keep moving, to never be satisfied, to do God's will, in short. This is a trap for Mephistopheles, and he doesn't even realize it. He thinks he's trapping Faust, but Faust is in fact trapping him. Faust now will have to constantly keep moving, constantly try all things, and Mephistopheles will enable him to try all things. Only when Faust gives up does Mephistopheles win. And since Faust knows this, he will never give up, not willingly. Um, the day will come, not in this text, in Faust Part 2, but it's a long time coming. So here is our bargain. If Faust gives up, if Faust is satisfied, if Faust says, I don't want this moment to pass away, then and only then does Mephistopheles win. He gets to take his soul, and they go from there. Now, Mephistopheles really doesn't understand this. Like, it's just a little while later, around line 1750, he says, you know, Faust is saying, now let us slake hot passions in the depths of sweet and sensual sin. Very Mephistophelian. Like, let's just do all of the things. Make me your magics, I'll not care to know what lies behind their outward show. Let us plunge into the rush of things of time and all its happenings. And Mephistopheles responds, nothing shall limit you, if you wish, sir, to sample every possible delight, to snatch your pleasures in full flight. Then let it be as you prefer. Enjoy them boldly. Grasp at what you want. Mephistopheles is offering what the devil always does. Pleasure, riches, joy, all of that. And Faust is like, dude, no. I tell you the mere pleasure is not the point. To dizzying, painful joy I dedicate myself. To refreshing frustration, loving hate. I've purged the lust for knowledge from my soul. Now the full range of suffering it shall face. And in my inner self I will embrace the experience allotted to the whole race of mankind. That's what he's interested in. Faust will be asking for things that make him unsatisfied. That's who he is. Mephistopheles still doesn't get this. Mephistopheles is still thinking in terms of, I will offer you the best stuff and it will satisfy you. Faust is saying, I don't want you to even offer it. That's not what I'm looking for. I want the things that I can't achieve. That is my nature. So give me what is unsatisfying. 
Now, this is the basic structure, so keep this in mind because Mephistopheles is going to be bringing this to some pretty interesting territory in the next couple of readings. Um, but before we call it for today, and I do want to sort of wrap it up since, again, the lecture before and the lecture after are going to be rather long, um, I want to wrap it up with like a quick overview of some of their adventures since a lot happens in the second half of this whole section, um, but not all of it is terribly plot relevant. Um, keep in mind, like the Faust book um, and like Marlowe, there's a lot of sort of just random adventures that Faust and Mephistopheles will go on in Goethe's Faust, sort of disconnected from everything else that's going on. Um, so first, we have Mephistopheles messes with the student. Um, like Mephistopheles dresses up in Faust's professorial gown and a student comes to ask him questions and Mephistopheles gives him all of these terrible answers. Um, like, he is the one who is emphasizing, no, you know, study wisdom and knowledge, study words, they are way more satisfying than actual truths, which any good romantic would see that as a lie and possibly even a joke. Um, he even has that line, when scholars study a thing, they strive to kill it first if it's alive. Then they have the parts and they've lost the whole, for the link that's missing was the living soul. Like Mephistopheles is emphasizing this. Yes, go and take the parts. Go and kill the thing if it's alive. That's true scholarship. Like he's lampooning the Enlightenment wisdom tradition, the Enlightenment scholarship tradition, academics across the board. Um, as we were saying, when he's dressed up as the medieval student, you know, he's representing all of this abstract knowledge completely divorced from the world. So he doubles down on that here and tries to like mislead the student with all this nonsense. Um, you'll also see that he emphasizes a lot of the things that Faust was studying in both Marlowe and in Goethe. Um, he wants the student to study philosophy. He wants the student to study medicine. He wants the student to study law. And the student is frequently frustrated by this. Finally, Mephistopheles just gives up and instead is suggesting that the student just start seducing women. Like, he's got this long speech about how to handle women with a lot of double entendres in it. It's not great but remember that Mephistopheles is a demon so you know that's probably okay I guess that he's teaching him badly um we'll talk more about that later um we also get their adventure to the tavern and this one is another very typical Faust story um in fact they're the action in this tavern is based on a tavern that Goethe went to which is supposedly the tavern where actual Dr. Faustus like the historical Faustus supposedly went and did magic tricks and they even have like a big mural on the wall that depicts exactly this scene. Um, notice that Mephistopheles like does all these conjuring tricks and he does this thing where he like bores holes in the table and stops them up and then wine comes out but any wine that spills on the floor like bursts into flame um this is all very typical of the Faust story um it's not in Marlowe's version he decided to skip that because he doesn't like the tavern scene isn't as big a deal in in his neck of the woods um as much as it is in like backwoodsy um Germany at this point but you'll also notice that where Faust is usually the one who's in this role, where it's Faust who pulls the tricks, and in the Faust book it is Faust who, you know, does the trick with the table and does the trick by convincing everyone that they're in a vineyard. Like, everything that Mephistopheles does, Faust would have done in the Faust book. Instead, Faust is like a bystander in this scene. He barely does anything. 
Like, he has, like, three lines. Mephistopheles is the one playing the clown, playing the conjurer. And it does come off as, like, cheap tricks. You know, here is this demon wielding all of the powers of the universe at his disposal. And, you know, he's, like, getting a bunch of people drunk. That's his game. Um, there's something very low about this scene, very vulgar. Um, and it actually kind of frustrates Faust on that level. Ostensibly, Mephistopheles is here to pick up friends, um, that Faust should not travel alone, that the company will, you know, make him happy. And these people are satisfied by food and drink. They have turned their life into a party. Presumably they could do the same to Faust, but Faust isn't interested. This is just dumb to him. Um, so Mephistopheles tries to clown around, play all these tricks. Faust doesn't bite, and they leave. They go to the witch's kitchen. And here, the plot actually kind of swings into motion a bit. You'll notice, in addition to all the tomfoolery with the, the like, monkeys dancing around with, like, the globe and stirring the, the cauldron and, you know, just all the weird stuff there, the two things that are kind of significant to Faust's character development are his interactions with the mirror and the potion that Mephistopheles has come to get. See, Faust at this point has expressed some concerns about the whirlwind tour of all of the pleasures and all of the, you know, things that Faust can struggle with. Um, he, he's mentioned, you know, he's an old man at this point. Like, he really isn't cut out for all of this excitement. So Mephistopheles takes him to the witch's hut, ostensibly to get him a youth potion. Um, ostensibly to restore his original vitality to him. Um, but Faust, Faust gets distracted. Specifically, he ends up staring into this mirror and sees this positively beautiful woman there. A woman that he yearns to possess. Like, that is actually dangerously close to violating the bounds of his agreement with Mephistopheles. He would be satisfied with this woman, it would seem. Um... And Mephistopheles doesn't even seem to notice that this is happening. Like, the mirror doesn't even pass his mind. In the meantime, he's talking to the witch about pre preparing this ostensible love, or this ostensible youth potion, which actually turns out to be a love potion. This is what Mephistopheles thinks restores Faust's youth, but it isn't entirely clear. Whatever Faust saw in the mirror seems to have affected him as deeply as the potion seems to. But at any rate, Mephistopheles concludes this scene by stressing that Faust will, in fact, fall in love with the next woman he sees. Um, no, no, he says, before you in the flesh you soon will see the very paragon of femininity, and he says aside to the audience, with that elixir coursing through him, soon any woman will be Helen to him. He's going to get Faust supernaturally infatuated with any woman on the street. That is Mephistopheles' plan. And that seems like a fairly reasonable plan here. By getting Faust seduced, he will probably want to do things like settle down or let the moment continue. Those things that will ultimately violate the terms of their agreement and win Mephistopheles Faust's soul. Um, so keep that in mind as we go forward that Faust is now in danger. He has been tricked by Mephistopheles into drinking this love potion or possibly tricked by the mirror into being young and vibrantly youthful again. 
it's not entirely clear what the motive force is. What is clear is that Faust's youth has been restored and something in him has awakened, something that has been long dormant because he's been spending all of his time studying books and not actually living his life. Now, Faust wants to live his life. The age that had been weighing heavily on him has been removed. Something, whether it is an actual youth potion or just youth being sort of reignited by this lust, this desire, he has finally found something that he wants in a way that the academic world simply didn't have anything to offer for Faust to conquer. Now, Faust is ready. He's primed. He is ready for his adventures with Mephistopheles. So, and then in the next section, Faust will find desire. Faust will fall in love. Um, but who he falls in love with is going to be every bit as important. Um, so keep that in mind. Watch for the relationship that develops and note who our third major character is when she appears. Um, remember what we talked about with Dr. Faustus, how potentially love could save Faust from his suffering. Notice how that interaction plays out in Faust's newfound love.